Well, good morning again. Now we're going to get into the scriptures this week, and I wanted to begin uh, our new season as, as the life of this church, just looking at simple truths that have profound implications. Uh, and the best way that I could think to do that was going back 500 years, to the 1500s, uh, to the Protestant Reformation, which is any church that's not Catholic traces back to history to the Protestant Reformation in some form or fashion. Uh, and the Protestant Reformation was marked by a commitment of those churchmen who led that uh, Reformation to five principles. They had a commitment to these five principles that in Latin are called the five solas. And sola means only or alone in Latin. Uh, and what they used those for is that when they were protesting against the Roman church, the reformers rallied around those complaints. There was five major complaints that they had that where they saw the church of the day diverging from Scripture. Uh, and they believed that the church was to be governed by Scripture alone. That's the first sola. And that men and women were to be saved by grace alone, the second one, through faith alone, the third one, through Christ alone. The fourth one, and the last one, is that all of those were to the glory of God alone. So what I wanted to do was use that as a structure for us for the next five weeks to just go through those things. All of those are, are, are principles that all Protestant churches that are faithfully pursuing Christ are going to agree with, that those are all principles that we find in the Scriptures. Uh, and so using that... This week and for this season in the life of our church is something that I thought would be helpful and as a way for you to be able to get to know me through talking on these five things. And we're just going to look at those five elements, the five solas, um, because they are all founded in Scripture and they are all of first importance. And I want you to get to know a little bit about me before we jump into a long book study, which is what I'm planning to do after we go through these five solas. So we're going to begin this morning with the first one, sola scriptura. That's what it means. That's the Latin phrase, but it means scripture alone. Now, why begin there with that one? I think that's a question that's valid that we need to ask because it seems like in some sense it would be better to do soli deo gloria, which is for glory of God alone, make more sense to do that one first. But why, I mean, why do sola scriptura? I mean, in some sense, you can't really rank those five things, scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, God's glory. You can't really, which one of those is more important or less important? That's kind of hard to do because if you start doing that, they're all, they're all intertwined. And if you start pulling them apart, well, you say, well, if, if grace alone is not how we're saved, then how does God get the glory alone? Because if we're saved by grace and something else, then something else needs to be glorified along with God. So you can't really separate those two. Uh, or, or even if Scripture isn't the sole source of absolute truth, then people could be saved by Muhammad through the Koran. And then it wouldn't be Christ alone. So they're all kind of intertwined in a way that you can't really pull them apart. So we begin with Scripture alone just because you've got to start somewhere. I mean, somebody's got a bad leadoff. You can't have everybody bad at the same time. You've got to start somewhere. But also, I think it's important to, so, to note this, is that the Scriptures is how we know the other four. I don't know who God is if I don't have a Bible. 
I don't know how sinners are saved if I don't have a Bible, and I have no clue who Jesus Christ is if I don't have a Bible. So we have to start here in a some kind of sense to make it all flow. And that's where systematic theology, they typically start with the doctrine of the Bible, because how do we know where to find the truth? We've got to establish that, and then we can say what the truth is, the truth about God, the truth about the Son and the Spirit, and then on all the way down. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this morning six key elements of sola scriptura, or scripture alone, that that idea, that concept in the church, six key elements. We're going to look at inerrancy, authority, sufficiency, proficiency, necessity, and I couldn't think of another good Y sounding one was joy. It technically ends with a Y, so I kept it all the way going down through, but uh, it didn't rhyme as much. It's just, what are you going to do? Now, this morning, I'm going to tell you now on the front end, this is going to be a fire hose of verse references. So if you are an avid note taker and then you find yourself with a writing cramp, I want you to know you can have all of this. Uh, we're going to start posting the sermon notes with the sermon video online so you can have exactly what I'm using up here. So it'll all be there categorized for you so that if you want to just listen, you can. Uh, because I'm going to have all the references here because there's going to be a lot. Just, just That's not how it's normally going to be as far as preaching goes. But in this style of preaching, there's just going to be a lot of references. So if you want to flip there and read them along with me, you're more than welcome to. Uh, the first point we're going to look at then, starting out with our six elements of sola scriptura, is the inerrancy of Scripture, that the Bible is without error in any way. Everything that it says and everything that it means. The first verse you have to go to for that is 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God. Now, some of your translations might say, all of Scripture is breathed out by God. That's actually a really good translation because that word in Greek is one word. It's theonoustos, God spirit, God air, God wind, God breathed. It, the, the Bible, according to the Bible, comes out of the very being of God, out of the very heart of God. It's breathed out. All Scripture is that way. That the Bible is of him and from him. It proceeds from his essence. How does the Bible view itself? Let's look at an Old Testament passage, Psalm 19, 7 through 9. The psalmist says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The Bible seems to have a fairly high view of itself as it is written. Could something be perfect, true, pure, sure, right, and yet somehow be mixed with error? I and mean, we're going to have, we have to reckon with that. Then Psalm 19 says all of those things about the Bible, that, that eliminates any possibility of there being something that's errant in these pages. So we'd have to acknowledge that. And then the, the other thing you have to look at, too, is this God's word. Does God put his name on this? Well, certainly we know that he does. And if it's God's word, what do we then know about God? 
Well, we know Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Titus 1, 2, a New Testament reference. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. God cannot lie. Bible says so. So if God cannot lie, then none of this can be erroneous. Because then God could lie. It's if it, something isn't true, it's not of God. This is the major question that we have to ask on this first point of inerrancy of Scripture. What if the Bible is not inerrant? Isn't that really so bad? I mean, what do we really lose? If the Bible has a, li- I mean, it has a little bit of error in it, has a little bit of factual inconsistencies, has a little bit of, you know, you know it's, it's not always right in all areas. We know a little bit more now that we've kind of progressed in time a little bit. What do we really lose if the Bible is inerrant? We've got to ask that question. Well, the first thing that we're going to have to settle on is, if this is not inerrant, then how do we know what is the truth in here and what is not? Somebody's got to make that decision. And are we not all sinners? And are we not all flawed? Then how can I perfectly decide what is imperfect in the Bible? That presents a pretty big problem for us because if, if this has error in it, then man becomes sovereign and God is not then I stand over the Bible and say yes and no, yes and no, true and false, right and wrong, instead of it coming to me perfectly true. This is just another form of idolatry. This is just another iteration of the Garden of Eden. What, what, what did Satan say to Eve? Did God really say? That's what he's questioning God's ability to communicate on some level. Is that what God really said? Well, that's, that may be what it sounded like. That's not what it meant. He didn't communicate inerrantly to you. If God can't get, let's think about it like this. If God can't get one book to us without error, something that publishers do all the time, every day in the United States, can't get one book to us without error, then what on earth makes him credible to save our souls from hell? I mean, think about that. If he can't get one book to us without error, then why would I trust him to save me from eternal condemnation? I mean, that makes it pretty sticky pretty quick. I mean, think about it, men. Would you trust a mechanic to rebuild your transmission who was struggling to air up your tires? I mean, I mean ladies, would you trust a hairdresser? You, you give her the picture of what you want to look like, and she can't figure out the cape and how to put it on you. That's the debate. Why would you trust her to be able to do that? Would anybody in Texas trust someone to cook them a brisket if they consistently burn baked beans? I mean, if you can't do the little thing, which is get us a, an inerrant Bible, that one volume that we can carry around in our pockets, some of them are so small, then why would we trust him to save me from the eternal judgment that my sin has rightfully earned? So we have an inerrant scripture. That's important for us. If we don't have an inerrant Bible, then we are hopeless. If we don't have an inerrant Bible, that means we inevitably have to put our hope in some other flawed human being to rightly tell us everything that is actually true. And that is a position most to be pitied. So we have an inerrant scripture. What about the authority of scripture? Does the Bible have any authority over us? 
Well, the reformers did believe that when they came up with this concept of sola scriptura, which they didn't really come up with. They just opened their Bibles and read it plain as day there. But does the Bible have authority over us? Well, let's zoom the lens out instead of looking at it from where we look at it from pretty low. When an infinite being speaks to all finite beings that he created, everything he says is authoritative, right? Everything he says. Think about it. How did God create the universe? By speaking. Genesis 1, what does it say? Ten times. And God said. That's what that's about. And God said. He just speaks. And he has, his words have authority over nothingness. Have you comprehended that before? It wasn't like he said, okay, logs, you all go over there and stick in the dirt and sprout. He spoke to nothing, and then something came. His authority over everything just speaks, and something comes out of nothing. That's a powerful word. How did Jesus calm the storm, heal leopards, and cast out demons? Did he have to gear up and sweat real hard? Or did he just say, be still? Did he just say, get up and walk? Did he just say, come out of him? He just speaks. And everything has to do what he says. He has authority. He's God. And what's going to make every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord? According to Philippians 2, God's just going to say, this is who my son is. And everybody's knee is going to be forcibly bent, and they will be forcibly made to say Jesus is Lord, just by God speaking. So God's word does have inherent authority with it. It comes with authority. And so then that means, what does that mean for us in the church? That means the preacher only has authority insofar as his words are God's words. Look at 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11. It's talking about spiritual gifts. We're kind of jumping in here in the middle of it. As each has received a gift, so Peter's telling the church how to use these gifts, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. And then it goes on talking about the service gifts. But whoever speaks, those in Christ's church who have been gifted to speak should speak as if his words are God's words. So then how does that one gifted to speak by God's spirit make sure that everything he says is God's words and not his words? By sticking to the Bible. By making sure that he only ever says the word of God. That's the only way that the preacher has any authority whatsoever. Is if he says God's word. Look at Titus, or Timothy, 2 Timothy 4. One through two, Paul says to his protege on his deathbed, Paul's deathbed, not his protege Timothy's deathbed, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. He said, preach the word. Notice what he didn't say. Sometimes a helpful, that's a helpful Bible study tool for us. What did the Bible not say that maybe we would have said or it could have said? He didn't say, preach your thoughts on American politics in the 21st century. Didn't say that. He didn't say, 
Preach from themes in the latest Marvel movies. Didn't say that. Didn't say preach popular self-help ideas and just slap a Jesus sticker on it. He said preach the word. That's what he said. That's what he told Timothy to do. The Bible alone has authority in the church. The refrain of the prophets in the Old Testament was this. Thus saith the Lord. They spoke King James English. So they said thus saith the Lord. That, that's, that was their refrain. God has said this. Jeremiah is saying, I have nothing to offer you. I'm just giving you what God has said. I don't have anything that I've cooked up on my own. Micah is saying the same thing. Elijah and Elisha, Habakkuk and Obadiah, they're all saying, God has said this. Thus says the Lord. That, that's their authority. They don't have any authority on their own in any way. So I wanted, I wanted you, church, to hear me say right now, that I have nothing to give you but God's word. I have nothing. I'm not a very interesting person. All I have is God's word. It would be a sin of presumption, of presumption on my part to come and give my thoughts from God's pulpit, to open up a Bible only to never look at it, only to never deliver it. See, a preacher, the word preaching and preacher in the New Testament is the Greek word keruso, and that's the word that describes a herald that would run before a king. The king's caravan's coming. The herald would run out ahead of it into the town and tell everybody what the king had told him to say. He has no, he has no prerogative to edit the king's message. He has no prerogative to add to the king's message. He has no message of his own. He's just coming with the king's message before the king comes. That's all a preacher is. You have no right to edit this, no right to add to it. You're just going to say all of it, like Paul said in Acts 20, the whole counsel of God's word, before the king comes back. That's it. That's the job. No right in any way to pontificate. It would, be, uh, it would just be a display of grand arrogance to get up here every week of any preacher and pontificate my thoughts, my ideas, my opinions, and what I think. You, you don't need anything like that. You need to hear from God. I need to hear from God. And that's what the, the preacher is supposed to do. So that's why expository preaching should be the steady diet of God's church. And I think that's pretty ironic that we're not doing that right now. Like we're not going through a book right now. But you got to jump out of that to be able to say that that's what we should be normally doing. Because why? Because God has the authority. He laid out John chapter 1 before John chapter 2 before John chapter 3. And he put John's gospel in the timeline of human history and where it's supposed to be, just like he did that with Nahum and just like he did that with Leviticus. So we're supposed to follow that because God is the authority, not the interpreter. He is himself. And this is how the Bible stands as an authoritative whole over us as the church, that it's, it has an overarching message and it's not just a divisible buffet of trinkets that you can kind of just pull out here and there. No, it's God put it in an order, and God decides the meaning. So the authority of Scripture trumps everything. Trumps, it, trumps, it trumps everything. It trumps wisdom that is achieved by just living life. Look at Psalm 119, 99 through 100. The psalmist says, I have more understanding than all my teachers. Why? For your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ages, the aged, the older. Why? For I keep your precepts. 
and experience and, and time spent and, and age, they, they certainly do have their place of prominence. They, they certainly do matter. But there are plenty of older people out there who know nothing and do nothing of any kind of eternal value. Just being old and just being smart and having degrees doesn't make you somebody that we should listen to. Knowing the word is what makes somebody worth listening to and which, which gives authority. You know, it's authoritative whether or not we know it. Ignorance is no excuse for violating the law, says the traffic cop. Have you ever heard that before? I didn't know it was 35 miles an hour. I didn't know my tickets were expired. I didn't know that you couldn't text and drive in a school zone with all your windows down and blaring loud. I didn't know any of that. The cop goes, too bad, you get a ticket anyway. Or we think of things too like, well, well, ignorance is bliss. No, says the Bible. Understanding is bliss. Listen to Psalm or Proverbs 3, 13 through 20. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her, he's personifying uh, wisdom as a, as a woman, just so you don't get lost. The gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit's better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold fast are called blessed. People who hold on to God's wisdom are called blessed because it's authoritative in our lives and it directs us authoritatively. But it's not just inerrant and it's not just authoritative. We can look at that and go, yeah, that's true. I mean, there can be a, a microwave uh, handbook on how to set up the microwave. It is inerrant. There's no spelling errors or grammatical errors in this, this little booklet. And it's authoritative over the microwave. Like, it, there's no, nothing else to do to learn about this microwave. This booklet is the booklet on the microwave. But it's not really sufficient. I mean, I need more than that. I mean, eventually I'm going to have to use the fridge and the oven and the stove and a car. And I, that this, this little pamphlet is, it is inerrant and it is authoritative, but it's not really sufficient for everything that I need in life and kitchen and cooking and all of those kinds of things. The Bible's not like that. The Bible is sufficient. We need every word of it. Go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Remember verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And then it gives a reason. Paul gives a reason. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work or complete, equipped for every good work. If you want to be complete as a Christian, all you need is the Bible. That's it. According to the Bible, all you need is the Bible. There's nothing good that you need in your life that you cannot come, that can't come to you from the Bible. You don't need to look anywhere else for equipping nor completing than the Bible. And you know what I find to be fascinating too is that none of the Bible is extraneous or optional or extra or just kind of superfluous. Like, yep, yeah, God just like, nah, I just got on a roll and turns out uh, that's where uh, Zechariah came from. Uh, you know, you don't really need it, but I was just kind of in the mood, so I just wrote it all out. No, this, the Bible says that every word, all Scripture is profitable. And we need it to complete ourselves as Christians. 
None of the Bible is an appendix or a tonsil or an adenoid. Well, you can just take it out. You don't really need it. You'll, you'll be fine just without it. No, we need every word of it. Luke 16, Jesus says in verse 17, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. One dot. One like punctuation mark. That's what Jesus believes about the Bible. And we have all that we need in it. Th this is sufficient. We have all that we need. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. All things pertaining to life and godliness are found in the scriptures. Sometimes we run around looking to dozens of other sources for stuff that would help us in life and growing in godliness. When our Bible says that they're all here, everything that pertains to life and godliness has been given to us in the word. You know, I think that we are eager to jump on to another source for direction because it seems easier than the Bible or, or it just seems more approachable or we're intimidated. We just don't know our Bibles very well. But it doesn't need to be so because everything we need, God has provided, which means understanding and growing in understanding. When Adam and Eve, after sin, what did they need? They needed covering. God provided covering. The Israelites, after leaving Egypt, they needed water in the desert. What did God provide? Moses hit that rock and water's going to come out. Provides water. The church in America in 2020 needed direction and hope and clarity. And what did God give us? The Bible. We have it. We have everything that we need. As the bride of Christ, all we need are the words of our husband, Jesus. As the children of the Father, all we need are the words of the Father. As the servants of the Master, all that we need are, are the words of the Master. All, as the sheep of the shepherd, all we need are the words of the shepherd. And we have them. We don't need some outside source to supplement us as the Christian church. We're not lacking in any way. We can feel like that at times, but we're not lacking in revelation from God. Uh, we, we don't need a brand new prophetic word to come to us. We don't need the newest philosophical or psychological methods. Our Bibles are sufficient. They're sufficient for us. And we're going to have to fight for that sufficiency. The Word of God tells us that. Jude, verse 3 and 4. Jude says, Jude the half-brother of Jesus, says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary, however, to write to you, appealing to you to contend for the faith. And here's the kicker once for all delivered to the saints once for all delivered god gave what he wanted once for all to the saints and you have to he said you have to contend for that why verse 4 says for certain people have crept in unnoticed meaning they've crept into the church unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation these are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our god into sensuality and deny our only master and lord Jesus Christ. This word's been given to us once for all. It cannot be edited, and it cannot be supplemented. And anyone seeking to bring, this is what these people were doing in Jude 3 and 4, anyone seeking to bring another authority alongside the Bible is an enemy of the church. And, need, and we need, have to contend for that. And Peter says the same kind of thing. Second Peter 3, 15 through 16. 
He says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as, do, as they do the other scriptures. Now, how many of you just got a little bit more comfort saying when Peter said, Paul's hard to read? Did you catch that? There are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. If you've ever read 2 Thessalonians at 5 a.m. in the morning, you can amen Peter right here. That is hard to read. But what does he say? He said people will twist the scriptures. They're going to add to it. They're going to supplement it. They're going to say that it's not sufficient. And Peter's saying, hold on to that. You have all that you need in these 66 books. But God's word is not just inerrant. It's not just sufficient and authoritative. It is proficient. It does something. God's word does God's work. So back to the Reformation in the 1500s. Martin Luther is the one leading that thing. And as it's coming towards the end of his life, and he's got, he's, he's, all these churches have changed now and are now actually preaching the gospel as written in the Bible, somebody came up to Martin Luther and said, hey, how did you do this? I mean, how did, how did you lead this Reformation to a place to where people are now following God's word and have broken from 1,500 years of church tradition that was bent away from the gospel how did you do this and martin luther kind of in his blunt german way said i didn't do anything i just sat in a pub in wittenberg and the word of god did everything i sat here and did nothing god's word did everything now obviously he wasn't just sitting there all the time he was preaching but his emphasis was it wasn't my my uh cunning it wasn't my uh methodology it wasn't my just kind of, I figured out how people really work, and this is the way to deliver it. He just, I got up and preached, sat down, and God's word did everything. That was what he said. And what do we want to see? If you think about that principle, what do we want to see happen in our families and in our churches and in our culture? You see, in our families, we want to see strong, healthy marriages, right? We all want that. What do we want to see? We want to see children who trust Christ early in life and then walk with him the totality of their lives. That's what we want to see. We want to see families that are, have legacies of multiplying believers and believers. I mean, my dad, the guy who discipled my dad who just recently died uh, a, a few months ago now, actually, he said at, he was at the end of his life, and this guy made tons of money, millions of dollars, uh, gave a lot of it away, uh, lived very frugally. He was on the board of uh, DTS. He was a friend of Tom Landry, coach. I mean, this guy was a big shot. And the only thing that he cared about, he said, every living descendant that I have is a, is a Christian. And that's the greatest thing that could, I could ever think of and imagine. And, and that's what we all want. Well, we want these things. And the word of God does those things. It directs us in those things. Deuteronomy 6, parents, teach your kids when you sit up and when you lay down and when you walk along the way, teach them my word. Husbands, Ephesians 5, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Wives, 1 Peter 3, even if you have an unbelieving husband, he can be won over without a word by your believing character. I mean, the word of God shows us that. What do we want to see happen in our, in our churches and in our church? We want to see happen in our church, disciples multiplied, the gospel going forward, Christians being built in the robustness of faith, and the word of God does that. First Timothy 3, 14 through 15. 
Paul writing Timothy says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know. He wants him to know this thing, how one ought to behave in the household of God. And what is the household of God, he goes on to say, which is the church of the living God. And this is what the church is, a pillar and buttress of the truth. What do we want to see happen in our churches? We want to see that happen, that we are a pillar and a buttress for the truth. We support and we hold up God's truth. What is God's truth? Jesus says in 17, in John 17, 17, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. When he's praying for his disciples, sanctify them in the truth. And what is the truth, Jesus? God's word is the truth. So what do we want to see happen in our culture? We want to see abortion abolished. We want to see racism eradicated. We want to see the vulnerable protected, whether they be in the womb, whether they be at the border, whether they be in a public bathroom, or whether they be in a homeless shelter. We want to see the vulnerable protected, evil punished, good rewarded, justice propagated, and God's word does these things. Pray for our leaders. We're commanded in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, comma, for kings and all who are in high positions. Why? Why should we be praying for them? It says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And how can we trust that? Because Proverbs 21.1 says that God directs the hearts of officials in the government. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So we, we pray and we trust that God's word will affect the culture. We treat everyone equally. James 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. We show no partiality. That's how we, the Bible tells us how to begin eradicating in our midst things like racism. And then what about justice? Micah 6 eight. He's told us. He has told you Oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? God's word always does God's work, but it does it in God's time. That's the kicker for us. Because we love God's word and we know that it's powerful, but the timing for us is sometimes pretty inconvenient. That we can see right now God... Saul is killing the people and he's chasing David. We need to just take him out now. And what does David do when he has that moment? He doesn't take Saul out. He cuts a corner off his robe to threaten him and then he feels bad for doing that. God, I'm waiting for your timing. You're going to put me in power when you're going to do that. He's waiting on God's timing. So we, we have to be a church that waits for Isaac and doesn't force an Ishmael. Because God's word is always going to do exactly what he intends it to do. Look at Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. For, the rain, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but after the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, after watering the earth, bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's will, word 
will do everything God intends it to do. And we just trust it. That's hard to do, but nevertheless, it's what we've been called to do. Now, we also need to know that the necessity of Scripture, because we can hear all of that stuff and go, wow, that seems great, uh, that it's inerrant, that it's authoritative, that it's sufficient, that it's proficient, it does what it's supposed to do. But the necessity, do we, I mean, how, how necessary, I mean, it's powerful. Lots of things are powerful out there that exist that I don't necessarily have to have. I mean, I'd love to have a jackhammer. That's a lot of power, and it accomplishes what it's supposed to do. But do I really, you know, how much do I need a jackhammer? No, the, we need the Scripture. We're nece- it's, necess- it's necessary for us. So there's this dichotomy of eating versus working out. You ever heard the Scriptures are studying the Bible as compared to, being, like, to working out? I, I mean, I know I've used that before. Like, hey, you got to get in the gym and just like, get strong, get in shape. Same thing with the Bible. Get your Bible, wake up, get in there. It's like working out. Get in there, develop that habit, that discipline. We've marketed it like that. I know I've done that before. But let's just take a quiet poll. Nobody raise your hands. It's January. It's February. How many of you have bailed on eating right and working out? I'm going to raise my hand because I'm going to confess before everybody. I've already bailed on it. I'm out of there. We, we do that, but, and some people connect with it and resonate with it. The working out mindset of getting into the Bible. Yeah, I need that. I got to get into that. But why did I bail on working out and eating right already? I'm okay with how I look. I know I'm fat, but I'm okay with it. My wife, she has to stay married to me. I mean, it's a done deal. She can't go anywhere. The fight's over. So, you know, working out, I could be healthier, but I'm fine with how I look. We could do that with the Word of God, right? We could go, yeah, you know, I mean, nobody's going to say, yeah, I, I have enough Bible in my life. I, I've done that. I've done that enough. And nobody's going to ever say that. But we function like that, right? Because when it's compared to working out, we're kind of like, yeah, you know, that's, I'm fine with that. But what if we change the metaphor from working out to something that's a little more vital? We don't use something that's good but optional. We use something that's good and vital, like eating, just taking in Food. Eating is something you have to do to live. Working out is something you have to do to just live better, a little better. See, you'll go weeks without, or let me not say you, I don't really know you that well. I'll go weeks without working out and feel fine. Just this is, everything's okay with this. But can anybody go a few hours without eating, without feeling that little rage, a little, little hangry, without losing your mind? We'll move heaven and earth to eat. I found this out early on in marriage. We were coming home from a trip. We were in Caldwell, going to College Station. And if you know the lay of the land, Caldwell's not that far. And College Station has better restaurants. I'm like, let's just get home. We're married, don't have any kids. And my wife is silently sitting over there just staring at me. We're not going to eat? I'm like, no, we'll just, we'll wait. We get home. You, you're really going to starve me? I mean, it became this big thing. I was like, I thought we could just kind of make it, and we would all be all right. No, you, we're never going to eat. We're, you're going to make me die in this car today, right here. I mean, just because she hadn't eaten in a little while. Learn, learn to just go ahead and pull over. Pull, it doesn't matter how sketchy it is. Just eat. We're going to eat right there. I mean, that's how, that's how the Word of God's got to become. I'm not going to eat today. I mean, because if, even if we're forced to miss a meal some, you know, you're working crazy long hours or you're traveling or something, you know, you, your schedule's off. 
you may miss a meal, but you know it, don't you? You're, I'm, I'm hungry. And, it, and it's always there with you. You can't shake it. You just kind of, you can't forget about it. That's how the Bible views intake of the Bible. Is like eating. Look at Job 23, 12. Job says this, faithful Job. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Job says, I would rather read than eat. I'd rather have God speak to me than eat. He puts it on that same level. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, faithful, godly prophet. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. And it's got to move into that, the necessity. I don't need to work out to live. I need to eat to live. The Bible is necessary for it. It's necessary for our sanctification, for our growing in Christ's likeness. How else are we going to grow if we don't take in God's word? Paul says that he wouldn't even have known what coveting was let alone that it was wrong if he didn't read it in the Bible. He says that in Romans 7. James 1 says that the Bible is like a mirror. It shows me everything that's wrong for me, that I, that's wrong about me, and how I don't line up exactly with the person and work of Jesus Christ, and how I need to grow in that. So the, word is con the world, rather, we have to think about this, the world is constantly discipling us. Every show we watch, movie we watch, broadcast we listen to, podcast, I mean, all those things, they're discipling us in some way. You're supposed to come away from a movie or a TV show feeling a certain way. They're trying to evoke an emotion and inform an opinion, whether how trivial or silly it may be. Sometimes it's not. And certainly something's true for, for a news broadcast. I mean, can everything be breaking news? It can't be. But everything is breaking news and urgent news. We're supposed to feel, ah, oh, the urgent and the panic, and it works. The world is discipling us constantly, and it's not towards Christ-likeness. It's trying to shove us into a mold. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, 1 through 2, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. It's trying to conform you. Don't do it. Don't be a part of it. But rather break that mold, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And how do you renew your mind if everything around you is flawed and or lying to you? The scriptures is the only place you can go. It's the only place that we can go. And Jesus says, talking about our sanctification, like we said earlier, John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The only way they're going to grow and be sanctified is if they're in the truth. And the only truth there is, is is your word. The only inherent truth is your word. And beyond that, beyond that is life is in the word of God. John 1, Jesus is called the word of God. That's what, he, that's what he's called there. And then it says in John 1 also that life is in him. Now we think about Jesus bringing life eternally, but have you ever made the connection there in John 1 that life is in the word? eternal life is in the word i had these two two older men in my life named one of them's name's mike one of them's west they were significantly older than me they still are um one of them's very close to be going to be with the lord 
I remember watching them, different scenes, different settings, and when somebody would just read the Bible around those men, it, it was like, I don't know, I mean, how could describe their face? It just felt like, like a shower after you've been in the desert for, for years. Or, or like somebody who's been dehydrated just got an IV put in their arm. And it's like, it, like life is flowing into their body. And they would just know, they would just say, hey, go read Psalm 95. Just read it out loud. I just want to hear it. I'll never forget the way that those men looked in those moments. Because I mean, that's, that's what it should be like. That's what it was like for the psalmist. Psalm 119. I'm going to read you a few verses. I'm skipping around. Remember, uh, you can have all of these verses. Let me just read you a few of these that I collected from Psalm 119. He says, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. I will never forget your precepts for by them you have given me life. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. That when this psalmist was in the pit of misery, he's like, just, just give me your word. Just let me have some more of your word. That's what gives me hope. That's what soothes me. That's what brings life to me. And, and Paul, at the very end of his life, 2 Timothy 4.13, this is kind of in that, uh, it seems like the boilerplate part of Paul's letters. But look at this nugget that you can find in there. It says to Timothy, When you come, Timothy, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Trous, also the books, and above all, the parchments. You know what a parchment was? A, a, a parchment is uh, animal skin. They say it's skin and animal and when they were going to write the Bible, they would write it on parchment. They wouldn't write it on paper. Paper was brittle, could get water damaged, and just in a you know, pretty volatile life circumstances in the first century world, you don't put something valuable on paper. You put it on parchment. Animal skin, you thin it out real deep, and then you, or real thin, you can write on it, and it lasts. That's what you'd write the Bible on. So Paul, look at this moment. Paul's at the end of his life. He knows he's not going to get out of this, this prison stint, and he doesn't. He eventually gets beheaded. And he's, he's in that moment, and he says, will you, will you bring me my Bible? I want a coat so I can stay warm enough to be able to sit up and read my Bible. Would you, would you bring me that, Timothy? He's not saying, get me out of here. Find me the best lawyer you can. I, there's, I need life. And life is in the Word. Above all, bring me those parchments with the Old Testament written on it. But I want to leave us with this. You can't... You can't end on, uh, nothing I've said so far has been disagreeable. Nobody's like, yeah, that doesn't sound right. I don't think the Bible's that important or that matters. We, we, we agree with all of that. But what, what we can't leave ourselves with is just a sense of duty. Because it's easy to get up and talk about the Bible and make everybody feel terrible. Like, all you have to do to make everybody feel terrible is talk about tithing, quiet times, and evangelism. And we all go home going like, yep, we're all failures. It, great service today. Uh, we gotta, we got to end on this joy. The, the principle of sola scriptura has a beating heart behind it. And we got to get to that beating heart because it's there. That there's joy unknown in the scriptures. There was 
fruit juice sweeter than you can imagine if you'll just climb to the top of the tree to get the fruit. So listen to the psalmist paint this picture of the sweetness of the scriptures. In Psalm 119, again, I'm going to skip around to a few verses. He says this, he says, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Now, that's the psalmist. Listen to somebody who talked with Jesus. Jesus' disciples in Luke 24. We're gonna, I'm going to set the story up. This is after he's resurrected, but not yet appeared to these particular disciples. In verse 13 of Luke 24, that very day, two of them, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So they don't know it's Jesus, even though it's Jesus with them. Supernaturally, they don't have, they don't have any idea who they're talking to. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, his now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but, they, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, here's what I was getting to. Verse 27. And beginning with Moses, meaning the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, so all the way through to the end, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus, on this walk with these two men who have no idea who he is, he walks from Genesis to Malachi and shows them Jesus. He does that for the whole walk all the way to where they're going. And in verse 28, they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. They still don't know it's Jesus. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Now here's the big crescendo. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? That's what you got to get at. The burning heart of knowing the Bible. They, they say, did not our hearts burn within us when he showed us the scriptures? 
What did they not say? That they didn't say, didn't our hearts burn within us because we were walking with Jesus? They didn't know it was him, so that's out. Didn't our hearts burn within us because we saw him do a miracle? They didn't see him do a miracle. Didn't our hearts burn within us because we needed a big tax return and we got one? No. Didn't our hearts burn within us because the Cowboys won the Super Bowl? No. Those arrows are gone. Did our hearts burn within us because their cancer was healed? Did their hearts burn within them because their life was comfortable? No, none of those things. What did they say? Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? I think we miss that when we read this story. Their hearts are burning within them because they were shown the Bible, the truth of God's word, Christ on every page. Their hearts were burning within them. See, when we go to the Bible just to merely get quick fixes, man, my marriage is struggling, where's that passage again? Or my teenager's at a crazy level in life, I need to go to this passage to find out, where's the one that says you can stone them? I need to find that passage. Thank you. That's in there, by the way. Different era, we'll get to it. I mean, when we go there for just, I need to stop sinning, I need to quit this one thing, I'm going to read these verses until they're burning in my brain. Or just got to get the pastor off my back and read my Bible. Or, or I just need a box of, check a box of self-approval. I did good today and read my Bible again. None of that makes your heart burn. None of that brings a burning, flaming heart. But when you dive headfirst into the crystal clear, life-giving waters of the Bible and you soak there to see Jesus, then your hearts will burn. Burn with a joy and exuberance unknown to the rest of the world that Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How do we come to him? Come to his word. He is the word. See, your greatest problem is not your circumstance or your pain or your lack of wonder. Your greatest problem is your lack of Christ-likeness. Whatever side of the cross you're on, If you don't know Christ at all, then your greatest problem is you don't know him in a saving way, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, and trust in him and be saved. That's your greatest problem. And on the other side of the cross, what's my greatest problem? I'm not enough like him. I'm not enough like God. I don't bear his image as fully as I could. So that's what I'm striving to do, and that's what I'm working after. Not to earn his favor, he's already given it to me because that's my biggest deficit in this life. So brothers and sisters, the pursuit of knowing Jesus and being like him, that is what makes your heart burn. And that comes from the scripture. That sets your hearts on fire. And that's sola scriptura. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We are so grateful to have a copy of the written word. We ask that you would bless the teaching of your word to our hearts and mind today. We ask that you would fill us full of your perfect truth so much so that when we are pressed, we bleed Bible. When we're cut, Bible comes out of us. As we enter in this new season of life as your church, we want to ask for your guidance over us. And we know that that guidance is contained in your scriptures. It's everything that we need as a church pertaining to life and godliness. So we ask you to fashion us 
as humble and submissive spirits before your inerrant precepts. Grant us endurance as a church to do things your way and wait for your timing. Father, it's so easy for us to be tempted to circumvent the clear direction of the Bible, and we're prone to bring our 21st century expectations for immediate results that are guaranteed to try to make them work in your church. But Father, we want to see your will done among us. We know that comes from patience and commitment to the scriptures. So we ask you for, we thank you rather for not leaving us in the dark as to what your will is. Thank you for, for speaking when you could have just remained silent and mysterious and unknown to us. But rather, you, you chose to draw near and be known to us. And you did that in part through your written word. What a colossal privilege to know you as you have chosen to reveal yourself. And may we always cherish the blessing of the Bible that tells us of a risen Savior who was sacrificed to save the lost by faith in him. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.